Hello and welcome back to KHN's What the Health. I'm your host, Julie Rovner, Chief Washington Correspondent for Kaiser Health News. I'm joined by some of the best and smartest health reporters in Washington. We're here to bring you the latest in news about health policy from the White House, Capitol Hill, federal agencies, and the states. We're taping today on Thursday, January 16th at 10.30 a.m. As always, news happens fast and things might have changed by the time you hear this. So here we go. Today, we are joined by Alice Olstein of Politico. Good morning. Tammy Luby of CNN. Hello. And my KHN colleague, Shafali Luthra. Hi. And our weekly reminder, if you want to see us as well as hear us, an edited version of the podcast is now on the cable channel Newsy at 11 a.m. Eastern every Sunday. So I promise there really is news in Washington that does not concern impeachment. Um, I want to start this week by checking in on the Democratic presidential primary race. I know it seems like it's been going on forever, but we are now less than three weeks away from actual voters voting in Iowa, or I guess caucusing is the right verb. Um, Six of the remaining 12 candidates debated in Des Moines Tuesday. And while foreign policy and climate change took up a lot of the debate time, health still did get some attention. I felt like maybe for the first time candidates were talking a bit less over people's heads uh, about how they would remake the nation's health care system and how it would impact people's pocketbooks. Anything in particular jump out to any of you? Shafali, I know you uh, paid particularly close attention. <laughs> I was really excited to talk about drug pricing for once, or I guess to hear candidates talk about drug pricing. Um, Elizabeth Warren has a plan to manufacture generics that is very different from what we've seen and would really change how we address drug shortages. Um, There was a lot of debate over Medicare negotiating prices, which, as we know, is fairly controversial, but could also be a way to to bring down prices, although it would have its own trade-offs. And those are areas we haven't really seen talked about on stage before. It's been mostly Medicare for all versus public option. Right. And we got redux of that. Um, I haven't really moved beyond the same set of questions around cost. Although, um, yeah, the the drug pricing focus was new. We didn't get that far into what the actual plans were. But Elizabeth Warren, you know, has campaign plans and bills introduced in Congress that would allow the government to manufacture drugs itself if negotiations with the companies don't result in bringing down the price enough. Right. And I thought one point that was interesting because I'm on the fact check team at CNN uh, was that a Klobuchar, Amy Klobuchar said that the Affordable Care Act actually, the approval rating is 10 points higher than the approval rating for President Trump. And I fact-checked that, and it's actually true. <laughs> Which is, yeah. That very... Which I just thought never thought about before, but I was like, well, that's an interesting factoid. <laughs> yes, and, and we will get to that. Um, speaking of Amy Klobuchar, she tried, and not for the first time, to bring up some health topics that are not Medicare for all or drug prices. She talked about long-term care, which is a giant and almost completely ignored policy issue. It was, I think I've said this before, it was one of the first big policy issues that I took on to write about when I started covering health care in 1986. Um, Elizabeth Warren has put out a major plan to help people with disabilities. Um, That's a topic that I don't think has gotten any debate time. Might we see a pivot at some point to talk about some of these other issues rather than than Medicare for all versus the public option? 
it's hard because all of the healthcare topics combined are fighting to break through when, you know, there's obviously so much um, related to the conflict with Iran that candidates want to talk about, um, impeachment, obviously. So I think that just within that space, trying to get attention on healthcare in general. Also, we had barely a tiny shout out from uh, Elizabeth Warren, I believe, to the case that could come before the Supreme Court this year or next year, which we'll talk about in a minute, <laughs> um, that could wipe out the Affordable Care Act and candidates wanting to refocus on President Trump's uh, role in that lawsuit um, as a sort of unifier among Democrats. Tammy, you were talking before we, we sat down about, you know, the problem with the debate is that you want issues that the candidates disagree on. And I know that abortion rights forces are really upset that, you know, reproductive health hasn't been a big issue in the debates. Well, they don't disagree. Right. <laughs> There's not very much for them to argue about amongst each other. At right. this point, they're trying to differ- differentiate themselves from each other rather than differentiating themselves from the Republicans. But right. I wonder if some of these sort of I don't want to call them second tier, other health mm. issues. I noticed, you know, public health people are very upset about that, that nothing's sort of being talked about. If, if, that, if it's a way to differentiate yourself from another candidate, not because you disagree with them, but because you're thinking about an issue that maybe they're or highlighting an issue that maybe they're not. I mean, I think those are addressed in a lot of the town halls that a lot of organizations are holding, where it's a forum for the candidate to actually talk about what they believe. And, you know, CNN has held town halls on, you know, climate change and where they have all the candidates come and discuss it. So that's a forum for that. But yeah, in a debate, it's not really a, a forum for People to just get up and say, this is what I would do for disability or this is what I would do for long-term care, even though those are obviously incredibly crucial topics. And I think, you know, we we saw that in the discussions on, you know, and Amy Klobuchar talking about that on Tuesday. The supporters of Medicare for All, it makes sense that this comes up over and over because it is their solution for all of these different things. Oh, you you care about long-term care? That's covered under Medicare for All. Oh, you care about drug prices? You wouldn't have to pay anything. Um, so it is sort of this, you know, blanket solution to all of the problems. So it, it makes sense that no matter what the specific topic within healthcare is, the supporters are going to keep bringing it up again and again. Although actually one of the issues is that long-term care is not really fully addressed in Medicare for All. I mean in the initial – in the 2016 mm-hmm. bill by Bernie Sanders, he punted it to Medicaid. And even now the institutional uh, But in the House it, bill it's in. Not institutional though. Right. I think. So that's right. the issue. In the, the House bill form and, of it. And in mm-hmm. Bernie has added it to mm-hmm. his plan as well for home and community. Right. But it just shows that it's still such a difficult – topic because, yes, everybody knows and and unfortunately many people do need it eventually at the end of their lives, but it's just so expensive that it's not – institutional care is still not in Medicare for all. Mm -hmm. And that is the interesting thing going back to sort of Alice's point. If we go past questions of how do you pay for health reform, there are actually differences in how the candidates would address long-term care, Mm -hmm. whether it's through some form of Medicare for all or something like what Amy Klobuchar would do. But we just haven't really gotten into that. I know. I'm, I'm, I'm still sort of surprised. I guess I guess now it's a – I would say it's a boomer thing except it's not a boomer thing. It's going to fall on the boomer's children. Um, at, at some point, it's going to be a millennial thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. It is just – it is one of those I mean, issues. It's certainly a Gen X thing. My, and it is certainly – I have friends it, yes. who are dealing with it right now. So. Yeah. And of course, we have – I mean, we've had this now for several generations where you have people in the middle who are trying to, you know, care for aging parents and young children. And that doesn't change. It has been the same for 30, 40 years. But what's changed is actually older people are living longer, Mm -hmm. but not necessarily healthier. So it's become – Needing care for longer. Right. Mm -hmm. So they need – 
it's become more of an issue for the children because their parents are around longer. One more thing. The thing that was interesting about drug pricing, which I don't think we've really seen before, was it was for once kind of a window into how these candidates would actually govern, even Mm -hmm. without a Senate majority, right? We had both Klobuchar and Warren talking about using executive action. Warren talked not by name, but more or less about using merchant rights or Section 1498, which doesn't require congressional approval and could actually be dramatically meaningful. And these are these are long-standing legislative authority for the executive to act. Mm-hmm. Um. That's sort of more what we need to hear from the candidates because, you know, you hear Bernie Sanders saying, I'll introduce Medicare for all my first week in office. Well, you can introduce whatever bill you want. That doesn't mean that it's going to pass. And, you know, in the Senate, most Democratic senators don't support Medicare for all. And most of the Senate Democratic candidates running this year don't support it either. And so, um, you know, you can say, you know, Mitch McConnell, Mitch McConnell, but <laughs> the the problem is in both parties. Yeah. So even if it's even if Chuck Schumer s- somehow mm-hmm. becomes a majority exactly. leader of the Senate, he's mm-hmm. not a huge fan of Medicare for all. So hearing from Warren and others what they would do through executive action is really relevant. Just this week, she announced that she wanted to do, you know, eliminate student loans through executive action, which is it's a little concerning, I guess, if you want to cut out one of our you know, major branches of government. <laughs> well, so. we'll talk about executive action in a minute. But first, I want to talk about that Texas lawsuit that we've been talking about. We have a little bit of an update. Um, you might remember that in December of 2018, a district court judge ruled that because Congress zeroed out the penalty for not having health insurance, the so-called individual mandate is unconstitutional, and therefore the whole law needs to fall. Then this past December, an appeals court panel sort of agreed, but said sent the case back to the Texas judge. Then the Democratic attorneys general who are defending the law uh, asked the Supreme Court to hear it on an expedited basis, as in the first half of this year. So we, we would have a decision by June. Um, well, then the court asked the Trump administration and the Republican attorneys general who are bringing the case what they think. They could ask them to submit their their briefs. And not surprisingly, their response was, why rush? In the words of the Justice Department's brief, the Fifth Circuit ruling, quote, creates no present real world emergency precisely because, as all parties agree, Section 5000A, that's the individual mandate, no longer subjects any individual to any concrete consequence, except the entire premise of the Republican case is that even without the penalty, there is still a requirement for people to have health insurance. So what are the Republicans trying to say here? They're trying to say we do not want to go into an election where everybody is thinking about us going to court and trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act, (laughs) essentially. And Democrats are are saying the opposite. They're saying that um, we don't want you to be able to you know, punt this until after the election. We need this to be addressed now because of the uncertainty to the healthcare markets. You can argue looking at, you know, the fairly solid enrollment numbers this year, mm-hmm. whether or not that's the case. Um, but I also think that people on both sides are thinking about whether the membership of the court could change in a year or so or whenever um, the case would make it back up from the district level all the way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, that's sort of the, the dice that the Democrats seem to roll, which is we'd rather sort of get to the Supreme Court yeah. now when we've got four liberals and probably Chief Justice Roberts, mm-hmm. who's upheld the ACA twice before on cases that um, most uh, observers think had more legal merit than this one. I just wonder of the Republicans sort of undercutting their own case by saying, no, you don't have to rush because nobody has to do anything. It's like if nobody has to do anything, then why are we in court? Right. Well, this is what they've been arguing all along. And they argued I was down in Louisiana for the uh, appellate court arguments. And, you know, 
they were saying that it's, you know, everything is operating smoothly so far, so we don't really need to rush this. So it's not surprising that that's what they also told the Supreme Court. But it'll be interesting to see because the appellate uh, judge, the judges said that the district court now has to go through a fi- with a fine-tooth comb what provisions can stand and what provisions can't. And I mean, you know, that's a, a lot of work that he's going to do. And, and interestingly, one provision that the appellate judges pulled out was calorie counts. <laughs> so we'll see. But yes, I think this this case has a long way to go still. And it's not just Democrats who want an expedited hearing either, right? Just yesterday, the health insurance lobby made the mm-hmm. same argument because of the uncertainty around the markets. And the hospitals too. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it's it's important to remember that it's not just the fate of the insurance exchanges mm-hmm. that, that we're looking at. It's the entire law. It's everything. It's calorie count. It's biosimilars. It's all of the payments to hospitals and doctors. And I mean, there's there's an enormous amount of things sort of under the surface in the Affordable Care Act that could, in theory, all be struck down. So uh, it'll be interesting to see. I was asking some of my legal experts when we might hear from the Supreme Court. And the answer is whenever they, they decide like to tell <laughs> us. I mean, whether we're here from whether they're take, taking the case, it does. It takes five justices to hear it on an expedited basis. It takes four justices is to hear the case. It takes five to decide to do it now. So I think it's it's a question of, you know, where where they're going to go and when. And I guess we will uh, stay tuned. Uh, meanwhile, President Trump himself is kind of inexplicably taking public credit for saving protections for people with pre-existing conditions, which is, according to PolitiFact, a pants-on-fire falsehood. Uh, Shafali, you actually wrote that fact check, as well as a broader story detailing how the administration is trying to take credit for fixing parts of the health system that either aren't fixed or they are currently trying to break more. What is the White House (laughs) doing here? They obviously would really like to be able to run on health care, especially pre-existing conditions. It's a very popular protection, but they don't really have much to show for it other than the president saying, I saved pre-existing conditions. And every legal expert I talked to, I've never heard such horror and shock and just like, I think the the headline we used was part fantasy, part delusion. Um, And the same... Professor told me, if you have anything more flammable than pants, use that. Like, this is absolutely ridiculous. Um, And then even when you break down, right, they talk about expedited approval of generic drugs, which we have seen more generic drugs come to market under the Trump administration. In theory, that could bring down prices. But a couple of our KHN colleagues investigated that further, and they found that, right, those drugs aren't for sale here. We're not actually seeing pricing relief for consumers or really any of these White House efforts bearing any fruit. Yeah, I mean, it seems that the administration has basically done most of its work in sort of trying to undermine a lot of the things mm. that they're now trying to take credit for. I mean, is this just the idea well, of don't don't look at the man behind well, the curtain, look at the big Oz? When I asked the White House for a statement, because I also did a fact check on this, um, their response, and you know, we know that sort of the administration, because they can't run on replacing the Affordable Care Act because they have not put out a plan, their response is, well, you know, we're looking at health more holistically. We have the kidney executive order. We have HIV. We have, uh, you know, other things that they've done, uh, opioids. So that's that's what they're running on because they don't really have anything to show for fixing the big, broader health system, lowering health care costs, prescription drugs. So we'll see. And and the big irony is that all of those initiatives, many of which are bipartisan, a lot of them depend on the Affordable Care Act and different programs within there at the same time that the administration is going to court and trying to get rid of the Affordable Care Act. 
and doesn't have a plan to replace it. And, but Seema Verma said that they'll keep the parts that they like. <laughs> she does keep saying that. What if the court says you can't? And then, yeah, and that, that she also keeps saying that they'll that they have a contingency plan if the court actually strikes down the Affordable Care Act, which we also haven't seen yet. The drug for HIV prevention is very expensive, and we haven't seen anything from the administration to bring the price down. It just sort of seems that you can talk a lot about having these public health initiatives, but what you're doing doesn't really show as much. And and of course, the one thing that they've really done in the in the individual market um, is allow these short term plans that don't necessarily cover pre existing conditions. So they've 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 undermined the protections for pre existing conditions, and yet Trump sort of tweets, "I'm I saved pre existing condition protections." It's like, no, I don't think you actually did. And like, there are people out there, right, who argue that these short term plans are an affordable option if you can't afford a marketplace plan, but. The reason they're affordable is because, yes, they don't protect for pre-existing conditions. Exactly. And, and they don't have, you know, the other protections as mm-hmm. well. And so if if you happen to, you know, get sick or have a serious, um, you know, accident or something, it would be not affordable. <laughs> it, it is interesting, though, because I will say that I put out last – actually, it was 2018 uh, when, when uh, the rules came out. I asked readers to write in and say, well, you know, what is your view on short-term health plans? And, of course, some had – you know, the typical stories of they thought they were covered and they weren't. But I actually did get some people who said that this was a good bridge for them. They knew what they were getting into and, you know, they did need a a plan like this. So remember, these plans did exist under the Obama administration. It was just that they could only be three months. Mm -hmm. So, you know, are they a substitute for the Affordable Care Act? No, they're not. And brokers I've spoke to that year and also in 2018 getting ready for 2019 said that a lot of their clients couldn't qualify for them because they did have some kind of pre-existing mm-hmm. condition and they were very hard to qualify for. But for some people, they do work. Yes. And that was why the Obama administration never actually banned them because right. they are important. You know, if you're, uh, you know, particularly for young people, students who are between jobs or going from school to work or going from work back to school, they can actually be useful for um, for sort of transitional periods. And that's why they left them in place for three months. But anyway, we will. I'm sure we will continue to see more from the president and the administration. Meanwhile, there is news from outside D.C. on the Medicaid front from the Elections Have Consequences file. It appears that Kansas will be the next state to expand Medicaid to everybody with low incomes under the Affordable Care Act. Kansas elected a Democratic governor in 2018, Laura Kelly, whose name Amy Klobuchar couldn't quite remember during the debate. Uh, she's been working to convince the Republican legislature to expand the program since she took office. Uh, she apparently reached a deal last week with the Republican head of the Senate, although this still has to be approved by both houses. If it expands, Kansas would become the 37th state to take up the federal government's offer to pay 90 percent of the cost of the expansion. Uh, and we're likely to see at least a few more in the coming year. Yes, Alice, you're nodding. Yeah, there's going to be ballot initiatives in a couple states and um, other states have bills actively making the way through the legislature. And Medicaid expansion has just been such a huge issue in these state races over the last few years. I mean, we've seen power change in Maine, um, and a lot of that was related to the Medicaid expansion fight, which, you know, finally happened. Yeah, where, where, the, where, the, where the voters of Maine voted to expand Medicaid and the Republican governor refused to do it. Right, exactly. And we saw something similar in Kansas where the previous Republican governor vetoed um, and they couldn't overcome the veto. That's right. The, re- the Republican legislature in Kansas has actually approved Yes. <laughs> Medicaid expansion, partly right. because we've seen so many rural hospitals mm-hmm. closing. Mm-hmm. Exactly. And then the Republican governor, former Senator Sam Brownback, said said no. And they came what was like was one, or two short, mm-hmm. one or two votes short of overriding mm-hmm. that veto. And then, you know, they were 
trying to uh, fight to pass a plan that would only expand it up to 100 percent of poverty instead of 138 percent. But yeah, finally, all of this pressure and the number of uninsured people and the, the hospitals that ha- that have a lot of political power in the state, you know, clamoring for this. Um, it seems like we're finally going to get a real, you know, full Medicaid expansion. It feels like one of the big arguments that Republican states have made is that, yeah, federal government, you say you're going to cover 90 percent of the cost, but we're worried about expanding this to a lot of people in our state and then having the federal government go away or cut the funding. And, you know, you would think that's not going to happen. And then you see that the ACA is in court and the whole thing could go away. Is there this sort of disconnect right now? Between these last states sort of thinking about coming in and the once again, the ACA is in peril. I mean, there's a lot to, you know, in play with Medicaid expansion. The the fight among the Republican states to pass it predates the lawsuit. But, you know, what I found interesting in Kansas was that it did not in Virginia when the Democratic governor came in, he had to institute, he had to agree to a work requirement, Mm -hmm. which now is probably not going to happen. But he did initially. And in Kansas, there's like a sort of beefed up work effort, but not an actual... It's not really a work requirement. It's not really a work requirement. So I thought that was interesting. But just also, I, uh, one thing I always find interesting is to recall that Medicaid initially passed in 1965, but the last state to actually approove it wasn't until 1982. In Arizona. In Arizona, exactly. So, you know, it's, you know, it's not that the original Medicaid was adopted wholly. It actually, by 1970, all but two states did adopt. So we're, you know, I guess we're six years out now, but... You know, when, presumably, when, it's possible they'll all come around. These things take time. When Congress passed the the CHIP program originally in uh, what was it, nineteen eighty seven, it's it also took five or six years, and that was the federal government paid a, a bonus for states that came in, not as much as they're paying for this Medicaid expansion, but mm-hmm. at least it was it was definitely more. So, all right, well, let us move on. There has been quite a lot of news on the reproductive health front in recent weeks, and we haven't talked about this in a while. Uh, first, in a continuation of a fight that raged when the Affordable Care Act was first passed 10 years ago, the Trump administration is now going to require uh, Affordable Care Act insurance plans that offer abortion coverage to bill separately for that coverage starting this summer, uh, even if it only costs like a dollar a month, which is actually, I think, about what they expect it to cost. So people would have to make two separate payments. This is likely to create a whole lot of confusion and might just well prompt insurers to stop offering coverage in states where that's allowed, right? That's basically the intent of the rule to for insurers to say it's so burdensome to issue these two bills um, to all of our enrollees. You know, we're just going to not cover abortion. Although, like you said, in California, New York and, and a few other states, Connecticut, yeah, um, all plans on the individual market have to offer abortion coverage. And yeah, I, this is sort of just a, a continuation of the federal government paying for abortion is banned in most circumstances. But what does that mean? What does paying for abortion mean? And this is sort of this multi-step definition of what that means. So if a plan in the Affordable Care Act exchange, someone gets a federal subsidy for that plan to be able to afford it, and then that plan would cover abortion, but only in certain circumstances, does that count as the federal government paying for abortion in this like very roundabout way? And this was a fight that almost held up the ACA entirely in 2010. One of the concerns also is that they may stop offering coverage, but also people may then forget to pay one mm-hmm. of these, probably the smaller, probably the abortion part, will forget to pay it, and then could actually lose their coverage entirely. Although there's this so. incredibly complicated um, explanation of how that shouldn't happen. 
but in 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 the regulation that that's gonna that gonna take effect in June. I don't think I haven't heard about anybody challenging this in court. That, have that's they? what surprised me as well. I thought there would be there would be more, you know, or maybe they can't lawsuits. until it actually takes effect. But the insurers theoretically have to be doing all of this that's true. planning mm-hmm. and preparation already. So. And they're not going to get paid for yeah. uh, for doing all of this extra paperwork, which mm-hmm. I think is is the whole idea. Right. Well, I think this they, is yeah. They sued in Kentucky before for work requirements before it took effect, mm-hmm. so That's they true. probably can. Yeah, I think it. I think it. it it depends, but yeah, I'll be I'll be watching for a lawsuit on this one. Um, another important story you might have missed: um, several states are considering or have passed bills that require doctors to tell women seeking medication abortion that the abortion can be reversed between taking the first and second pills in the two pill regimen. There's no medical evidence for this, um, and a study that was actually launched to see if it really works. Uh, back last year, except now that study has been halted because it turns out to be dangerous. Three of the first 12 women enrolled in the study had to be rushed to the hospital with severe bleeding. So what does this mean for the state laws that require the possibility to be mentioned in pre-abortion counseling? I think that there's lawsuits related to those laws requiring doctors to tell women you know, about this so-called reversal Yes, the American option. Medical Association mm-hmm. is actually suing right. one of these, against one of these laws. And so they can now point to this and say, you know, not only are you compelling doctors to engage in speech that they don't believe in, um, you're requiring them to engage in speech that, you know, could actively harm their patients. Um, and they can point to the study being called off. Yeah, I'm wondering whether, yeah, how this is going to play out in some of these lawsuits or how many more of these kinds of of laws we're going to see. This has been this sort of this idea of abortion reversal um, using for the abortion pill has been kicking around for a couple of years now. Um, it was it was interesting that they did the study, but it was it was also interesting that they then stopped the study mm-hmm. because it turned out not to be safe or at least the, the way the study was designed. Right. Um, and finally, on the reproductive health front, um, this week, everyone is watching to see what the Supreme Court does with the Louisiana abortion law that's before it this term. Oral arguments are set for early March. But meanwhile, the court has quietly allowed a Kentucky law requiring women seeking abortions to have ultrasounds and to require physicians to verbally describe what's in those ultrasounds. Again, this is the whole compelled speech right. by doctors. Um, there was no opinion in this case. The court just refused to take up an appeal to to strike the law down so it stands. Does this give any hints about where the court is going on abortion litigation? It is interesting because this policy was blocked at the district level and then at the circuit level. It was a divided opinion, but the majority said the policy should be allowed to go into effect requiring doctors. Um, you know, doctors say that there's no medical value to um, requiring this ultrasound into making patients um you know, listen to a description of it. Um, and the the uh, judge writing the majority opinion said, I disagree. You know, we require doctors to provide medical accurate information to their patients all the time. This is just one of those requirements. It helps inform a woman's decision whether or not to have an abortion to, to have this description read. And the policy also requires um, to play the audio of the heartbeat if it's detectable. Right. So, yeah, we have sort of judges 
weighing in on what information doctors should have to give their patients um, and doctors in many instances disagreeing with that. So there may or may not be an ACA case before the court in June, but there will definitely be an abortion case um, this, this year that will get a decision probably in the middle of the summer. As, you know, how big is how big is abortion going to be in this year's campaign? I, I, clearly, Roe v. Wade is at bigger risk than it has been before. And yet I feel like every four years I write a story that says, you know, this is going to be the year that abortion is really going to be determinative in the campaign. And it hasn't really been, except for Republicans. I mean, Republicans definitely, I mean, you can see the evangelical support for for Trump based on, you know, what he's done and all the things that we've just been talking about. And yet Democrats, they still need voters who oppose abortion mm-hmm. to make a majority. I mean, that's sort of the only explanation I can think of. But I think we also saw, um, I mean, maybe not abortion specifically, but a general concern about women's access to health care play a huge role in 2018 and Democrats winning back the House. And so I, I think it does play a role. I think it's hard to isolate out from, you know, the bigger access to healthcare conversation. And the other sort of thing that we're seeing, and Alice, maybe you can speak more to this, is a lot more emphasis by Democrats on the courts, mm-hmm. given the Trump administration's efforts to really, really nominate a ton of judges. And if we're talking about abortion, we talk about courts. That's definitely an avenue in which abortion could become more of a topic. And that's and basically, I mean, the entire autumn, the the Senate did almost no legislation. All they did was approve mm-hmm. judges. Um, I, I forget. Yeah, I think what, it's like a quarter of district court judges now are approved are Trump are Trump appointees. Approved. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So they've you know the the Republicans have have done an exceptionally good job um, at this, particularly the and that's what McConnell reserves. touts a lot. Yeah, as well he should. All right. Well, that is the news for this week. Now it is time for our extra credit segment. That's where we each suggest a story we read the past week that we think others should read too. Don't worry if you miss it. We will post the links to these stories on the podcast page at khn.org/slash what the health. Alice, why don't you go first this week? Sure. So I wanted to highlight a piece in The Wall Street Journal by our colleague Stephanie Armour. It's plan to revamp Medicaid eligibility checks draws criticism. And it's basically looking at so with the effort to impose work requirements on Medicaid in a bunch of states with that blocked in court for now stalled. Um, You know, we have states, because it's been blocked in some states, we have states that were considering going for it now saying, we're going to hold off for now. And so this is really showing a shift in strategy and thinking, okay, well, what other conservative changes can we try to impose that aren't work requirements? And so they are... Basically, how can we make it harder for people to get on and stay on Medicaid? Right. And from their perspective, conservatives say that this is necessary because you have people who shouldn't be eligible for Medicaid getting Medicaid. You can argue about whether or not that's happening. Um, but they're thinking, OK, well, if we have these stricter you know, enrollment requirements where we look more closely at what people's income is and everything and you know, require them to re-enroll at certain points, um, you know, does that ensure that the right people are getting in or does that block the people who should be getting it from being able to do it because the, the burden of Um, trying to enroll is so high. And so you have some states already going for this, already implementing stricter checks. Um, You have a lot of people losing their insurance coverage because of that. And what we're seeing is states are saying, oh, you know, our Medicaid enrollment is going down because the economy is so great and folks are getting uh, jobs that have health care. Well, one point, if you want to, you know, question that is that a lot of the people losing 
coverage are children. So children aren't getting <laughs> great jobs with, you know, awesome benefits. <laughs> Although their parents might be. Their parents might be. But um, there's also just not a lot of evidence to support those claims. Tammy. Yeah, so I picked a story in Vox. Uh, Dylan Scott is uh, going, I guess, around the world to tell us how other countries – it's a new series in Vox uh, telling us how other countries are achieving universal health care. And it started very interestingly to me with Taiwan, which is not a country that I knew a lot about, not a country that I've read a lot about. Usually when we talk about universal health care and Medicare for all, we're talking about Europe. So that's why I really enjoyed this story, and I think it really, uh, you know, was very informative. Uh, and in this case, uh, it says in, the, in Taiwan, there were 40 percent in the 1980s, 40 percent of people lacked insurance, and, you know, people lost everything if they had a medical crisis. And then they decided in the 1990s uh, to embrace single payer, and they have, you know, now very comprehensive insurance, which a lot of people like. They support the program. They do have to pay for it, and there have been some increases, uh, you know, in costs to that they have had to cover. But and, – and it does also show what I really liked about the story was is that it does show that it's not nirvana. It's not perfect. There are still a lot of problems with it. So I'm uh, interested. Dylan's story yesterday was on Australia, which also was very interesting. It has a public program for everyone and a private program that you can buy into. So I'm looking forward to reading the rest of the series. And I love that. I love that the trip around the world is going to include Maryland. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for global budgets. <laughs> and it's, yes, global hospital budgets. Shivali. So I have a story from our KHN colleague, Marky and Hariluk. It is high deductible plans jeopardize financial health of patients in rural hospitals and gets into a bunch of very human stories about people in rural areas who have these high deductible health plans, right? They have to pay an arm and a leg before their coverage kicks in. And it often causes problems for patients who can't afford the care they need. And it's causing problems for rural hospitals, too, which are already struggling and have more and more patients who can't afford their medical bills. And then it results in more bad debt. I remember I heard sort of the first concerns from hospitals about increasing deductibles about 15 years ago. I mean, well before mm -hmm. the Affordable Care Act that these high deductibles were going to be a problem because these people just don't have the money and then the hospital ends up eating it even if they have insurance coverage. So it is it is a right. big problem. Um, my story is a fun read from my friend Jeff Goldsmith, a policy analyst who was actually a guest on the podcast in 2018. It's called Seven for the Twenties, A Futurist Looks at the Next Decade, and it's on a blog called the deductible. Among some of Jeff's more provocative predictions, baby boomers will not swamp the health care system as much as expected because they will, as a group, die sooner than expected. That's kind of grim. Also, United Health Group uh, may comprise nearly 10 percent of the entire U.S. health system by later in the decade between its health insurance lines, uh, its big involvement in Medicare Advantage, and its gigantic management arm, Optum. And perhaps a breakthrough in treating schizophrenia, one of the most stubborn and expensive mental health ailments. Uh, the whole thing is well worth your time. So that is our show for this week. As always, if you enjoyed the podcast, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. We'd appreciate it if you left us a review. That helps other people find us too. Also, as always, you can email us your comments or questions. We're at whatthehealth, all one word, at kff.org. Or you can tweet me. I'm at Jay Rovner. At Alice Wolstein. At Luby, L-U-H-B-Y. At Shafali L. We'll be back in your feed next week. In the meantime, be healthy.